Falsus Jach. Columbanus was a man who crossed borders, literally and figuratively. He was born and raised in the south of Ireland, but received his spiritual formation in the north, where he entered monastic life in the famous monastery of Bangor in County Down. From Bangor, he left his homeland in middle age as a self-imposed exile for Christ. Columbanus is a remarkable odyssey from the coast of Northern Ireland all the way through mainland Europe to Bobbio in the foothills of the Apennine Mountains in northern Italy was a journey of some 2,000 miles right into the disintegrating heartlands of the former Roman Empire. He transcended ethnic, confessional and political divides by embodying the Christian message that we are all pilgrims on a journey to another homeland. He's still crossing borders, for this first millennium man has an enduring relevance, even to and perhaps especially for the third millennium. He's one of the earliest and strongest voices in Christian Ireland, the first person to communicate a real sense of Irish identity in writing, and the first to introduce us to the concept of a united Europe. November 2015 is the 1400th anniversary of the death of Columbanus. Over the next hour, we'll find out more about this remarkable man who played such a definitive role in the cultural, educational and spiritual renewal of Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire. A man who is arguably the most significant Irish religious figure. Joining me today in studio are Father Sean McDonough, a Columban missionary, and Dr Alexander O'Hara of the Austrian Academy of Sciences in Vienna, who has also compiled St Columbanus's selected writings. Alex, Columbanus is often called the first European. Back in 1950, in post-war Europe, there was a big celebration of the 1400th anniversary of his birth in Luxeuil, and we know now that among this meeting of scholars, there was also a meeting of politicians and European leaders under the banner of and inspired by Columbanus. So tell us something about that very important moment, because people do say now that this was where the idea of the European Union gathered momentum. Well, the pretext for the Luxoy conference was really to get the Irish, the French and the Italians together to discuss economic and trade, coal and steel, a treaty. But that didn't work out. It was a, a great uh, impulse for the scholarship on, on Columbanus. But it was, it was the brainchild of Robert Schuman, the French foreign minister who was one of the founders of the European Union. And you had a remarkable gathering of diplomats and scholars. You had uh, Roncalli, who became... Uh, oh, John the 23rd. John the 23rd, now Saint uh, John the 23rd. And you had Costello, I think De Valera was also there. Sean um, McBride was there. Sean McBride. So it was a re and, and, you know, Luxoy is a tiny market town. It's quite remote in, in France. But it gave a great impetus to future scholarship on Columbanus. And it was a, a way for Schumann to bring together these major European uh, leaders just five years after the end of the Second World War. And it was to test him out. Wasn't it the idea, what we're told now is, that he was testing out the idea 
of a united Europe? Was it a runner at all? And he seems to have got good feedback in Luxeuil. Yeah, it appears to appears to have taken off. Yeah. So tell me, uh, so that's now. We now know that Columbanus was very relevant to the world that we inhabit in the European Union. But let's go all the way back to his life, 6th century Ireland. What was life like then? Well, he's born right after a period of endemic plague across the whole of Western Europe, uh, the Justinianic Plague, which devastated a lot of the population. He's born in Leinster in the southeast, probably around Carlo, Mount Leinster area. He's born into probably a, a landowning family. And Ireland at the time is a tribal society, it's a close-knit society, but it's deeply politically divided into tiny little kingdoms or tua, uh, maybe about a hundred in Ireland that are ruled by kings and then you have overlord kings, regional overlord kings and you have then the most powerful amongst these regional kings becomes the high king Atara, which is a ritual kingship. Tell me about how we know so much about these times and how in particular we seem to know a lot about Columbanus and about his life. Well, 6th century Ireland is really a black hole in terms of the historical evidence. And we know a lot from the archaeology. Uh, Now we have, for example, a cemetery in the north of Ireland from around this period where the average life expectancy for a male was 23. So how is it that out of that black hole, so much real lived stuff is known about Columbanus? Well, Columbanus is unique in that he's the first Irish person to leave a literary corpus of writings, a quite extensive corpus for this period. So a number of letters, poems, sermons, monastic rules. and But we also have a detailed biography, a spiritual biography, written by one of his Italian monks, Jonas of Bobbio, written about 20 years after Columbanus' death in Bobbio. And Jonas knows a lot of the Irish monks who accompanied Columbanus from Ireland. So here is this man, this young man now, growing up in an Ireland where, uh, as we've heard, people die very young. It's violent. There are a lot of conflicts. It's the transition period from paganism to Christianity. And he now sets off as a young man to Fermanagh and on to Bangor. Tell us about that, Sean. What is it that calls him to make uh, this choice? Alex said these were small little kingdoms that were Tuha, but there were also connections right through Ireland. I mean, he didn't set off from Michel or Mount Leinster and stay walking into the sun. He Obviously, there were connections. He arrived up at the monastery where Sinel was. He also, he wasn't probably from a kingly class, but he had a great sense of his own identity. And when he was talking to bishops, when he was talking to popes afterwards, when he was talking to kings, there was no colonialism. There was no one saying, well, poor me, I'm, I'm not very well educated. He talked to people clearly. So he arrived up there and would have got, probably at home before he got there, would have got an excellent education, for example, an education in Latin. His Latin is, is superb in places. Possibly learned some Greek. He uses it in some of his sermons. He would have learned this thing called computus, which is mathematics allied to uh, astronomy to understand how the times work and, and the years and all of that. So he would have considered his education there when he had this controversy later with the Frankish kings about the date of Easter. He would have said uh, the way he does their mat- mathematics and their observation is that he 
as as good as theirs is. He also said, by the way, ours did come from Rome itself. And he also had kind of interesting ideas that you couldn't have the date of Easter before the the spring equinox because Easter was about rising. So it couldn't be when when the darkness was all over the place. So it had to be the beginning. So, so there, I presume, he would have learned the Psalms by heart. So when he would have gone over to Bangor, now Bangor was an Irish monastery. It wasn't the kind of monastery we know today. You had a very strong leader there, Congal. He was a very strong person. So monasticism was a very interesting reality. First of all, people prayed and prayed a lot. Did almost 150 psalms a day, which is extraordinary. Most of them would have learned them off by heart. The second thing, which wasn't extraordinary in Ireland, but was extraordinary in Europe, that people of an education actually worked with their hands. Servile work was things people didn't do. So you had that connect between work uh, between between prayer and also you had to connect with people who are working p- as part of the monastery itself. And the monastery itself is a place of learning. I mean, there's a scriptorium. He himself writes a book of psalms, a book about the psalms. Does he not? Yes, naturally, he produced this extraordinary corpus in twenty years. So it, surely he would have written something before leaving Bangor. It's a scriptorium. So and it, there is real concern for learning and good learning there. And uh, people are being educated. And it's a centre. One of the things and about, he's also, of course, ordained a priest, is he not? He's because ordained not all priest. the monks and, are priests. Uh, no, well, the vast majority of monks in, in those monasteries would be would have been brothers. He's ordained a priest and he's also considered the central theologian for the abbot at the time. So he was very much say involved in running of the abbot of the monastery with the leader of the monastery, Congol. But he did want to go on exile for Christ. He did want to go for this white martyrdom. But he had to get the permission of his abbot, and that didn't come for a long time because the abbot wanted to keep him, obviously, there because of, of his learning and because of the role he was playing in the monastery. And in the end, of course, his journey to Europe, which is the one thing that eventually makes him so famous and so influential, that happens when he's practically in middle age, is it not, Alex? How come he starts, he embarks on a spiritual journey he already has had his exile, you know, internal exile in Ireland when he left his home and came to Bangor. But now he, in late life, he's heading off right into the unknown world. So tell us, what do we know about his plans and his intentions when he set off? We probably didn't have any um, because the whole point was that this was a, a ritual vow. It was a ritual activity that placed the monk entirely in the hands of God and that you didn't have a destination in mind. He ended up in Brittany. But the whole point about Pozio or Peregrinatio or ascetic exile away from one's homeland was really uh, the next step on his monastic vocation. So he'd been a monk probably at least for 20 years at this point. He was probably in his 40s when he left Ireland. And this was a serious commitment to leave the security, the surroundings of your country for the rest of your life into an unknown world. And he he obviously at that time thought that the end of the world wasn't that far off. That was the thinking of the time, was it not? Yes, after the end of the Roman Empire in the West in, in the late 5th century, there was this sense that the world was coming to an end, that the eschaton, the second coming of the Christ, was imminent. And you get this sense of urgency very clearly in Columbanus's writings and in his contemporary Gregory the Great Pope. Uh, there is this sense of 
a world after time. Maybe we should listen to some of the words that he wrote, something maybe perhaps from one of his letters about his own search for God that touches on some of the things that we've been talking about in terms of his own real dedication and commitment. Narrow, you see, is the gate, and trodden by few is the highway of perfection, which avoids the vices on the left hand and on the right the evils of vanity and pride. Therefore must we pass by the royal road to the city of the living God, through affliction of the flesh and contrition of the heart, through bodily toil and spiritual humility, through our practice the substance of our lawful duty, not the reward of merit. And what is greater than these through Christ's grace, faith, hope, and charity. In that letter, we can hear the values, the deep principles of Columbanus. And obviously, he's taking these ideals with him to France. On the way, he stops off in Cornwall. He arrives in this chaotic Europe. But yet, in a very short period of time, this monk from an obscure island has founded three monasteries in rapid succession. That cannot be a mean or small accomplishment in the Europe of his time. Tell us about how that happens. Well, we have to understand Columbanus really in the context of the late antique world. And Columbanus, although he's coming from the edges of this world, he's entering a very ancient landscape when he arrives in Brittany and then makes his way into Gaul, later France. And as a peregrinus, as an exile, paradoxically, his status rose to the level of a king or a bishop in Ireland. So, and it was also the, the, the role of kings to provide hospitality and protection to an exile. Because once you left your, your kind of area, you were protectionless. You had to rely on a patronus, a kind of a big man to really look after you. And so he, he lands in Brittany and he probably had contact with Breton monks who had already established a monastery in the Vosges area of Burgundy, so eastern France. And he goes there and he makes contact with uh, the Merovingian king. Gaul, again, is, is very divided at this period into different kingdoms, but it's controlled by the Merovingian dynasty, a Frankish dynasty. And he's given land around Luxoy to establish his first monastery. And then in rapid succession, really, he establishes three monasteries. But these are ancient thermal healing places and in conjunction with road networks. And what I think he's trying to do here is he's appropriating ancient healing places within a Christian pastoral framework. Um, so he's kind so of, these were actually pagan sites that he has adopted, are they? They, they were ancient pagan places. There, we know that there was a Christian community in Luxor, right up to the time that Columbanus arrived there. So Gaul, uh, so the, the Christianity in Gaul is, is well established. But in the rural areas where Columbanus goes to, we're thinking about it kind of syncretic kind of religions where it's, folk practice was very strong and, and there would have been practices that were still associated with these spring sites. And he talks about magic practitioners, for example, in his penitential. So now we're, we've 
heard about the monasteries that he finds here in France. They, we know, become phenomenal centres of scholarship and they have uh, an enduring effect in that area on all Europe, even a long-lasting effect in the way in which the practice of Roman Catholicism is conducted to this day. Tell us about that, Sean. Well, one of the things that he brings from the Irish tradition is a sense of direction, that the abbot directs people in their spiritual life and that it's a growing process, the whole spiritual traditions, the values you have, the kind of prayer, contemplation and all of that. The trouble is, of course, when he came to the continent, there, there, there were practices there also in terms of people who had sinned. In a sense, uh, they were almost so great that people began to put off almost baptism until close to the time that they were actually dying. So they weren't beginning to live out a Christian life at all. So the reality of the kind of um, what we say in, in our Anamkara, this uh, person who helped us along the journey. So the Columban and the monks brought this tradition to Roman Catholicism, which over the next century or two developed into the practice we have of modern auricular confession. So it's one of the, in a sense, the things that the Irish monastic church actually gave to the, um, the wider church. The other thing, of course, you have to remember is that Columban or Columbanos came from an Ireland in which there were no cities. It was so he was very much at home in in the rural area. And as Alex was saying, you know, he came in after the beginning of the fall of the Roman Empire and when many tribes were coming across Europe. And so uh, redeveloping the faith in those areas was very much you can see when he's writing back from Nantes to the community there. He, has the, he had the dual thing of helping to build up a really good community of monks that would be icons for people in the, in, the, in the surrounding area. But also he saw himself as preaching the gospel. He saw himself as a missionary. And I think that's very important to be able to, to, to make that, uh, that point. And he's the missionary who gives us this new form, who gives them this new form of penance, this new form of confession, which is, from our point of view today, anybody practising Roman Catholicism today would know, would see this as something fresh and alive and extant even today. Medicine for the soul. The diversity of offences makes a diversity of penances. For doctors of the body also compound their medicines in diverse kinds. Then so also should spiritual doctors treat with diverse kinds of cures the wounds of souls. Their sicknesses, offences, griefs, distresses and pains. So he turns penance from essentially a public expression or a publicly expressed thing into a into a private thing. Um, tell us about that, that journey, that spiritual journey of his and its legacy. Well, one of the other things about it, you see, is he's, he's, like, he's like the doctor. He's saying, uh, what ills have you? But from, for Columban, for Columbanus, building up the Christian faith in individuals and communities was very, very important. It wasn't just saying you've been baptised and you have, we share the creed with you. There's a whole discipline involved in, in a deep contemplative prayer life. There's a whole discipline involved in trying to make, for example, the scriptures understood and known to the people of, of the area, building up a moral life. So the one thing I take from Columban at that time is that sense that the Christian life is a life to be lived and to, to grow in. There was also this sense, I think, very strong in Columbanus 
at this time that the world was coming to an end, that there was a great sense of urgency. And you get that, you get that sense from, from reading him and his contemporary Gregory the Great, the great pope, um, that once the Roman Empire had, had fallen in, in the Western Roman Empire in the late 5th century, there was a sense that the, the world was coming to, to an end and the eschaton, the second coming of the Christ, was imminent. And yet he was investing in building enormous monasteries, that some of which you know, last to this day, Anagri, Luxeul, Fontaine. And we know that the monasteries attract large numbers of monks and large numbers of others who come to be educated. But still... His relationships aren't always straightforward, are they? I mean, he he has his, he has difficulties. It's not a it's not this it's not the case of a monk who comes and everything goes well for him. I would add to, uh, to Alexander's point here that the fact that he came from Ireland and Pat, it's in Patrick's writing as well that the gospel has now been preached to the ends of the earth, and that there was a feeling that once the gospel had reached the ends of the earth, then this last time, this the eschaton, which is the last time, can now happen much more easily. And he, when he's writing, for example, to Boniface again, he makes the same point. We know that the gospel has reached here. We're coming back with that gospel. We weren't part of the Roman Empire. We are not interested in the wonderful things of Rome. We're interested that you are the bishop of Rome and that... There is a relationship between us and you because you wanted to see the gospel reach the ends of the earth and now it has come back to Europe. But tell, tell us about the problems he then ex- experiences because it's not all straightforward. No, no, he quickly comes in conflict with the Gallic bishops or so the local bishops in Gaul. And these are really state bureaucrats. Um, once the empire disintegrated, the bishops took leading roles in their cities and a civic administrator. So they're very powerful men and they're connected. They're, most of them are from the Gallo-Roman senatorial aristocracy, so going back to the Roman period. And they're very powerful. Columbanus establishes, his, he's very canny, he establishes his monasteries on diocesan boundaries. He brings over an Irish bishop with him. So part of his success is actually he cuts out the bishops. And this is a very, I suppose, a, a monastic kind of distrust of bishops. But he, he complains to, so Pope Gregory the Great, his contemporary at the time, that, you know, the bishops were buying their church office, this uh, simony. They were still having affairs with their wives, so adultery. And he was kind of appalled by them. And so he quickly came in, in conflict with them. Watch, dear Pope. It is time to arise from sleep. The Lord approaches. And already we stand almost at the end in the midst of perilous times. See, the nations are troubled, the kingdoms are moved. Therefore soon shall the Most High utter his voice, and the earth shall be shaken. In another letter, that's a pretty tough letter, but in another letter to the French bishops that, to me, really is very uh, a very fresh letter in the sense that it means a lot, even in the third millennium, he writes... We are all members of one body, whether Franks or Britons or Irish or whatever our race. And again, he uses this expression. He's the first person that we know ever of ever using this expression. Totius a Europea, all of Europe. Now, he writes that to Gregory the Great in the year 600. It could have been written by Robert Schumann or Jean Monnet, who founded the European Union. So how practical was that notion of unity and working together in the Europe that he encountered 
in his century. Well, Europe has always been deeply divided politically. In terms of the context in which he writes to the Pope, Rome at this time is really the the Western frontier of the Byzantine Empire, so the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, the popes are in very close contact with the Eastern Roman emperors in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul. But Columbanus is the first to really voice a developing consciousness of Western Europe as a distinct cultural and religious zone with the Bishop of Rome as the spiritual head, as it were. But the Europe of his time was deeply divided into different ethnic kingdoms. Uh, Father Sean mentioned the once there was a vacuum, th- there was um, Germanic tribes, and they established barbarian kingdoms across Western Europe. And that's the... The wonderful thing is, is that Columbanus transcends these ethnic divisions in a way. He, his vision is much bigger than the local politics. And yet he's regarded as a maverick. On the one hand, he's this great inspiration and visionary. He draws to himself these, this wonderful uh, gathering of, of intellectuals and monks, of leaders. He finds wonderful monasteries. Yet he doesn't get on with a lot of people. The bishops don't like him very much. A lot of kings fall out with him. Um, How did he run his monastery, Sean? What kind of leader was he within the monastic tradition? Well, you'd have to think, just reading beneath the lines, that he must have been very powerful because he attracted a lot of people in Gaul from that area who were upper-class people, and he built the monasteries on them. So, I mean, he mustn't be this formidable character. And, you know, somebody says the letter he wrote back to the monks Uh, when he was at Nantes to be sent back to Ireland is one of the most extraordinary forms in Western Europe of his real understanding and love for the people he had left behind. So he's a very complex character. But Is he uh, charismatic? Oh, of course he has to be charismatic. There's no way you could get, you know, tens of people and uh, more, you know, hundreds of, uh, of monks eventually and many foundations from his place, unless he was that. And that's why Jonas wrote his biography. He wanted, this was an extraordinary person. Now, of course, he will tell you, naturally, by the time he was writing his book, the monks in Luxai had come to terms with the bishops and also they'd come to terms with the Frankish kings. So uh, we don't know so much from, from Jonas about what happened to Columban in, in the, we know it from some of his own writings. But yeah, I think he was, I think he was a very challenging person. And I also think that's why he has a, a meaning for Europe today, yeah. And he also, for example, don't, don't forget, Arianism was very strong in Europe at the time, particularly when he moved into Italy. It was a very strong tradition, and he was very much centred on the Catholicism of the Church and challenging the Pope, you know, to show leadership and breaking down these divisions that was there and to be a centre of unity. And Here's this man who wants to be a centre of unity, but he's caused an awful lot of friction. Let's just hear what he felt himself about being a source of friction, not just the charismatic man. I confess that I am broken on this account. While I wish to help all who, when I spoke to them, fought against me without cause, and while I trusted all, I have been almost driven mad. So he's almost driven mad. And actually, he was almost, was he not, driven out of France? Yes, he he fell out with his... um, royal patrons and the bishops in, in 610, and he was kicked out. He was um, given military escort about 600 miles across to the Atlantic uh, coast, to Nantes, and he was to be deported back to Ireland. And you get a sense from his fourth letter back to his monks at Luxoy of the kind of 
desperation and, and heartbreak that he really felt because this would have meant the breaking of his vow if he went back to Ireland. We should hear some of that letter now because it is very telling about this Columbanus. Now, as I write, a messenger has reached me saying that the ship is ready for me in which I shall be born unwilling to my country. But if I escape, there is no guard to prevent it, for they seem to desire this, that I should escape. If I am cast into the sea like Jonah, who himself is also called Columba in Hebrew, pray that someone may take the place of the whale to bring me back in safe concealment by a happy voyage to restore your Jonah to the land he longs for. There's great pathos in that, great sadness. And yet, in an extraordinary twist to the story, he ends up not getting banished. He ends up getting a reprieve. Tell us about what happened there. He escapes. We don't know exactly how. We have two conflicting accounts, which are interesting to compare. So Colin Bannis, in his own letter, gives a sense that the guards took pity on him and basically allowed him to escape. But Jonas he was sprung from jail. Yeah, he 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 made he he legged it basically, but um, but then Jonas's account is more miraculous and dramatic. Uh, he tells of uh, the ship that's to take him back to Ireland is is kind of d- detained by a tsunami of a wave that that stops the ship for three days, and then the skipper tells tells. Was Jonas amongst, partial to exaggeration? Do you think? No, he was he was actually um, he was very measured and and yeah. We we actually we don't know the circumstances, but we do know he escapes. I should also mention that when he was banished from Luxoy, the king pursued an ethnic strategy. So only the Irish and the British monks were kicked out. The French monks were allowed to stay. So it's this group of Irish and British monks that then head off uh, up to the north of the kingdom to Paris and then across to the eastern part of Metz. And they're welcomed by rival kings and rival uh, Frankish aristocratic clans. And uh, Columbanus then navigates his way down the Rhine or up the Rhine to uh, Lake Constance and he settles in Bregenz, uh, now in western Austria. And tell us, there's a bit of a falling out, isn't there, with St Gaul, one of his companions from the beginning who'd come with him from Ireland, his great pal, but there's a falling out that has consequences even today, isn't it? Uh, we, we see the wonderful the wonderful library in St Gallen in Switzerland, which is a, a, a testimony to his influence. Tell us a little bit about him, Well, Sean. Uh, as you say, they fell out, but the reality in, in the beginning, you, you talked about this man had covered 2,000 miles, so God had covered it with him and uh, You know, you could well imagine someone who had passed from one place to another. They'd only got two two years in Bregenz. And now we were being asked to go over the Alps and and down into into the plains of Lombardy. And you can see how someone like Gaul would say, look, I've come so far. And uh, yes, he set up that extraordinary monastery or was set up later in San Gallen. And it became one of the great centres of study uh, right through the high Middle Ages. And to this day, it's one of the great places uh, for manuscripts and even some of the early manuscripts where you have early Irish in these manuscripts. So, again, these two people, Columban and uh, Gaul, uh, 
you know, le left a great heritage. And of course, you have to think eventually, when Columban was dying, he sent back his staff to Gaul, in a sense of saying, because the other point of it was, the abbot was always, one had to always obey one's abbot. There's no way of, say, the modern um, monastery where you'd come up to argue with the abbot. Once he decided to break th that trust, that's what he got. But Europe benefited very much from San Gallen and also from the monastery in Bobbio. As you say, they lasted right up to the time of the French Revolution and Napoleon. I mean, they lasted an extraordinarily long period of time. Tell me about them. We, we know that St. Gallen is, is a remarkable place. The library is simply uh, an extraordinary, it's part, of the, it's part of Europe's great intellectual patrimony. But meanwhile, then, Columbanus himself sets off that dreadful journey. I don't know how he did it at his time of life over into um, uh, over into the uh, over the Apennines and into into Italy. And he settles in Bobbio, in the far north of Italy. Tell us a little bit about what happens there, because Bobbio was a small place then. It's now a reasonable sized town, and it's still built around that abbey. I mean, that abbey is still fourteen hundred years later, the core of Bobbio. Yeah. Well, again, he follows a very similar strategy to all of his monastic foundations, he goes directly to the king, he goes to the, the man in power and the Lombard king gives him the site of this land. All of these monasteries are on fiscal land, so royal land controlled by the crown. Again, it's on a route network, an important route network going from Pavia down to Rome. It's on a bridging point over the river Trebia. But Columbanus is only there a year by the time he, he dies. He's now probably in his mid-60s. He's a, an old man for the time. And he spends his last year as a kind of rugged outdoorsman, chopping trees and building the monastery and repairing the roof of, a, of an abandoned church that became the Abbatial Church. So it's, it's a very, by the time he dies, it's a very primitive uh, monastic community but it really takes off after his death. And then he has, he dies in Bobbio, as we know, in 615. He's buried there. So, and, and there people talk about him as if he just went around the corner yesterday. There's a huge freshness about the story of Columbanus. Tell me about his, let's just talk for a moment about his, about the, the different levels of his legacy, Sean, because there are so many elements to his legacy. Talk to me, first of all, about his spiritual legacy. Well, I think his spiritual legacy is that sense of the total Europe, and that the gospel of the day has something very important to say at a formal, structural, societal level to where people are living. And uh, I think uh, Columbanus, in the various ways, he appropriated the Christian message in his way of dealing with the people from, as I say, Britons, uh, Frankish people, Irish people. He was sensitive to that. And to me, that's one of the great challenges for, for the Christian churches today. He was also some, as he said, if you take away people's liberty, you take away their dignity, coming from the 6th century. Uh, I mean, that could be something written in the United Nations in 1949, and that he believed that, that he believed every person was, in a sense, a, an icon of God's presence in the world, was is, is a huge heritage to, to Europe. Uh, in my own area, I, I like to think of him as, uh, because he came from Ireland, because we didn't have some of the philosophical world that was part of Western Christianity. He was very sensitive to God's creation. And I think that's the thing that's so important in the modern world. There are very few other saints, apart from, from Francis, that you can talk about in that whole tradition who had the sensitivity that Columban had. Maybe we should listen to some of the words about this man, this man of action. We desire to know all. We tire of doing all we know. 
hoping that words can count instead of deeds. Perhaps here below they may, for above they clearly cannot, in God's sight, since there it is not he who has spoken, but he who has acted that shall be saved. So Columbanus has this rich, extensive, vast spiritual legacy. And then there is the other but related legacy of scholarship, of intellectualism, of intellectual discourse, of writing, the libraries of that period that are associated with him, the scriptoria, they're, they're just simply beyond compare. They are, they are the treasury that allows Europe to move from the Dark Ages into some form of enlightenment. So tell us about the importance of the scriptoria. What were the scriptoria? What were the libraries? What were the monasteries? How important were they? Well, they were very important, even in retaining uh, Latin as a language in the church, in a, in a sense because in some of the Irish monasteries with Irish monks coming as the language began to change into the Romance languages, very often the way of interpreting Latin was, was seen in the Irish monasteries. Also, of course, uh, he was concerned for theology in these areas um, and a missionary presence that he was, he was bringing uh, the good news of Christ again to all of Europe. And then that unity of Europe, and I think that's very important, as we have said, for almost 2,000 years has been at the heart of Europe, particularly in the last 400 years. Europe, you know, fought regularly and fought two awful world wars. Five years after the end of that war at a conference in Luxai in 1950, people were talking about Columban as the patron of those who were working for a united Europe when Europe had murdered, been murdering each other for the previous five or six, well, from 1939 until 1945. So... I mean, one of my hopes, I thought it might have happened more in the, in the pontificate of, uh, of Pope Benedict, was that he would have become um, a saint for Europe, like many of the other saints. Why would he deserve that, Alex, do you think? Why would he deserve that title, or would he deserve it? Yes, yeah, I, th I think he would, certainly. Um, really, what you mentioned earlier as, as being the first one to voice a sense of European consciousness at, at such an early time, and for his transcendence, I think, of, of ethnic boundaries. And, and what's very important for Columbanus is unity. He's always calling for unity and calling to the popes for unity. And that's something he tries to create in his own communities. It's, it's, it might not work out all the time. And we know that there were deep divisions within his communities. It was difficult. But he's very similar in a way to his contemporary Pope Gregory the Great, who talks about unity and diversity. And I think that's a very important message for, for Europe. I also think he gives leadership. And at a time when many people, either in church or state, don't give leadership, they're afraid of one faction, they're afraid of something else happening. It is inspiring to see someone who had his great vision and yet did something about it and led people and left a huge heritage. Whereas if somebody said, I'm, you know, there's so many things happening here, I don't know what to do. And we see that happening in Europe today. There are real decisions that need to be made. Some people are going to have to sacrifice and take... Uh, Columban had all those factors about him. And I think that's partly why people see that his vision of Europe, based more on solidarity than on economics, is something hugely important. And they, I would love to... That's the vision of Europe, I think, that started with Money and, uh, and Schumann. And I'm not too sure that it's, it's the present vision of Europe. And I think Columban would be on the side of uh, Money and, and, and Schumann saying this is, the, this is the only Europe that will survive. Otherwise, if we're just looking out for ourselves all the times and talking about whether we can, you know, whether we can take 
For example, the refugees that are coming into Europe today, certainly Colin Ballas would be saying that's that's what we do as Christians. If, it strikes me as rather strange that someone like um, Robert Schuman or Jean Monnet, these two men who were the founding fathers of the European Union, the people who came up with this extraordinary, miraculous idea for the redemption of Europe and the securing of its peace. seems to me odd that they would know so much about Columbanus. He would be such a central, inspirational figure to these two mainstream European politicians. And yet, he wouldn't be all that well-known in Ireland, would he? Why? Not at all. No. Why? And that, well, partly because he went away. Uh, and uh, even in the, in the late Middle Ages, he wasn't known in Ireland. Uh, in, in a study of, 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 the, of the same sense of late medi- medieval Ireland, he's not actually on the books. So, and he, even to this day, people regularly mix him up with his, the older person, Columba or Columkill, who, who went, went to, to, to Iona. Uh, I think this is the 1400th anniversary. It's, it's an opportunity for us to again see the wonderful work that this man did see that he's the, he's the first Irish person from whom we have a very major uh, group of, of writings. He's the first person about whom a book or a, an autobiography was written. So I think he has a lot to offer us as Europeans. It was interesting. I remember Pat Cox many years ago before he was elected uh, chair of the European Parliament went on a, on a, a pilgrimage uh, to Bobbio to say this is I'm drawing inspiration for a man who had a real vision of Europe and I think that vision of Europe is important today. What would he think of the Europe of today, do you think? Well, they're two very different worlds. You know, he's a he's a sixth century uh, man. But I think like what Father Sean uh, said, very true. I think he the focus on economics over identity and the sense of a pan-European identity uh, I think the, they've missed the opportunity there with in terms of the focus on the economy and, and the market. Would you call Columbanus the first European, as some have called him? Yes, I would. Yeah, yeah. Undoubtedly. In that sense that the major thing before that was the Roman Empire and, and, and the outlines of the Roman Empire. And, and he's, he's not there. He's from beyond it. And yet he subsumed much of what the Roman Empire was. And always came back and said he was impressed. Okay, he'd be impressed with with the buildings, of, but he was mainly impressed with leadership and le- and good strong leadership from the popes that he wrote to. But you have to also remember that for Columbanus, he was kind of operating in a world after time in his conception. So he really thought that the world was about to end. It's very difficult to imagine what he would make of of the world today. Well, let's hope that we've maybe helped people to understand his time and a little bit more about his influence in our time. His ideas stretched across Europe. They promoted unity. They galvanised momentum. He asked us to speak up for change, not to settle for old beliefs. He encouraged discourse. He encouraged the acceptance and respect for diversity. Seems to me those are messages that are not to be wasted on people uh, across Europe and the world today. They have a relevance and a, and a great degree of freshness about them even today, do they not? They do, and he was also a very religious man. And I think religion in that sense is very important in the 20th century and in Europe itself where often people say, you know, have almost privatised religion. And I think Columbanus, he, he, particularly his writings, have very central, centred on Christ, centred on the unity of the church and centred on a vision for society, even if they thought it was coming to an end. But the vision basically was of sharing and of the gospel of Jesus. Well, unfortunately, we're coming to an end of our, our discourse, our talk around Columbanus. 
My thanks to Alexander O'Hara and to Father Sean McDonough for their contribution, to Enda Oates for reading the extracts from the writings of St Columbanus. Research was by Zoe Cummins, Mark McGrath was on sound, and a very special thanks to Declan McGrath and Derek Mooney for their help. The producer was Kevin Reynolds. Directly after this programme, you can hear Kerry Hardy's play To Find a Heathen Place and Sound a Bell. But we leave the final word to one of Columbanus's Irish monks, who wrote this piece about him and about Ireland in the 7th century. Hibernia Insula, Ireland, Island of Saints and Scholars, and a fitting tribute to an extraordinary man. From me, Mary McAleese, Goramila Mahagov, Aswar Gaidirov, Agus Banach DJ, Agus Columbanus, Liv Galair. Columbanus, who is also called Columba, was born on the island of Ireland, which is situated at the far end of ocean. And there awaits the setting of the sun, while the world is turning and light comes down the sea into western shadows. And the foamy shores of the sea, the furthest curve of dry land, yield immense manes of waves and savage hiding places. Shores which are grey in colour and have an over-great curl rippling in places, like a garment, a curl which the milky blue backs of the waves produce suddenly. Nor do they, the waves, allow a gently moving boat seeking shores familiar to us to put out to the shaking sea. Above these, the yellow-haired sun descends with darkened light and seeks the regions of wheeling Arcturus. Following the north wind, he aims to rise in the east, so that now revived, he may give back a pleasant light to the world, and showing himself far and wide to the world with his trembling fire. Thus by a course which has passed through all the turning points of the day and night, with which he had to deal, he illuminates the lands with his brilliance, giving back pleasant warmth to the world wet with dew. Hibernia Insula Jonas of Babio Life of Columbanus <laughs>